Hello and welcome to European Pharmaceutical Reviews podcast. In this episode, we're exploring exciting vaccine technologies, and I'm thrilled to be joined by two representatives from GlaxoSmithKline, vaccine development leader, Julia Giordano, PhD, and senior manager of global medical affairs vaccines, Professor Mark Doherty. My name is Hannah Balfour. I'm the science writer for European Pharmaceutical Review, and I will be your host today. Vaccine development has been a critical part of lives around the world over the past two years, with messenger RNA, also known as mRNA, vaccines being a particularly poignant topic of conversation, given that they were granted regulatory approval for the first time to help combat COVID-19 and have since been administered to millions worldwide. However, beyond the pandemic, there are many other transmissible diseases for which vaccine development is ongoing and various reasons to continue to advance vaccine technologies to enable us to combat them. In this podcast, we'll discuss two vaccine technologies, namely adjuvant systems and generalized modules for membrane antigens that GSK is developing to enhance disease prevention for the future. So hi, Julia and Mark, thank you for joining me today. So to start us off, Julia, could you tell me a little bit about what your current role is and outline what your research focuses on? So actually, I, I work uh, in GSK vaccine since 2010, and in uh, in these years, I um, cover several roles, but all within the R&D department. And uh, the role I am currently doing is called vaccine development lead. In this role, I lead a multidisciplinary team uh, of people with a goal to develop a new vaccine to address an unmet medical need. And I cannot talk to you today about this specific vaccine. However, I will talk to you about the technology that we are using. And this technology is called Gemma. Fabulous. And Mark, could you tell me what you do? Well, my job title is Senior Manager, which is both completely accurate and completely uninformative. So what I do is I work in the part of the company that's called medical, and our job is essentially to provide medical and scientific backup to other partners in the, the company. That means making sure that everything that we say internally and externally is accurate. But a big part of my job also is helping point our activities in the right direction by looking at public health, by looking at, at medical needs and saying, this is something that we should be working on. This is what we should be doing in the future. And obviously, as we all know, with COVID-19 over the past two to three years, vaccines have seen a marked amount of development. Um, so, Mark, could you tell me a little bit about some of the latest developments in vaccinology, whether it's vaccine systems or further into formulation and manufacturing? There's been a lot of progress in the last few years on actually all of those aspects. We can break it down, I think, into, into four areas, what you could think of as new tech. So, for example, mRNA vaccines have, have been very much the hot topic the last couple of years. But I think what people don't appreciate is that the first mRNA vaccines were tested in, in humans in 2008. It's not like a technology which suddenly popped up out of nowhere. And we're not finished with developing that particular form of technology. Companies are working on 
uh, adjuvant systems for mRNA vaccine development and for other vaccine development as well. There are new technologies for delivering uh, vaccines like Gemma, which I think Julia is going to talk about. And there's uh, other technologies that we're excited about for things like bioconjugation. And I think rather than go into detail on those, what they have in common is that we're moving away from processes which were very heavy on synthetic chemistry. So where you're taking your components, you're putting them together, you're uh, modifying them chemically to get a, an output. And instead, we're moving to a much more biologically focused uh, technology or family of technologies where things that we used to do synthetically are actually coded for by recombinant production organisms. So, for example, instead of taking a polysaccharide, conjugating it to your protein and dealing with all of the issues around purification, uh, antigen formation, or uh, the difficulties that you have in maintaining the structure of your preferred vaccine, you can just get an organism to produce the conjugate as a single molecule and then just purify it with a tag. So all of these technologies, they're all affected by our ability to do this. So that's that's one thing. And the flip side of it, which has made a big difference in the way we work and our ability to bring vaccines very fast, as we did during the pandemic, is actually a better understanding at a molecular level of how these vaccines actually work, what they're doing in the body, what the disease processes are doing in the body. Um, so that if we go back, well, to when I started my career, if we want to go back that far, um, there was very much an attitude of, we'll try a bunch of different things and see what happens. Today, the attitude is very much more focus on the molecular processes, design your vaccine in advance for your target population, and then go straight in with that. It's reduced our failure rate dramatically. And so those two processes come together into digitalization. So things like making digital twins for manufacturing processes, but also making digital twin models for patient disease processes as well. So there's basically two major streams which are converging here. One of them is a shift towards biological processes for manufacturing, where we would have typically used synthetic chemistry in the past. And the second one is a digitalization process, which is kind of coming in at every level. Absolutely. And it's certainly something we're seeing across the entire industry is that shift towards digitalization, reducing redundancies and sort of number of tests going on, how much animal testing we're performing, all the rest of it. So as you mentioned, GSK is working on something called GEMMA, which is generalized molecules for membrane antigens. And that's your focus at the moment, isn't it, Julia? So could you tell me what this is and how it works? So to tell you about GEMMA, you have to take a step back and tell you something about gram-negative bacteria. Almost all gram-negative bacteria, pathogenic or not, are able to spontaneously release vesicle out of their outer membrane uh, during growth. Okay, And those vesicles are called OMV, outer membrane vesicle. Well, those vesicles can be uh, a component in a vaccine formulation. And um, this is because uh, since they do originate from the bacterial outer membrane, they really truly resemble bacteria. However, 
naturally, this gram negative does not produce uh, a big amount of those uh, vesicles. And on top of that, those vesicles, since they do resemble to bacteria out membrane, they contain also elements that make them uh, uh, rectogenic, uh, endotoxin, uh, like uh, lipopolysaccharide, for example. So in order to overcome to this issue, it is possible to produce autoimmune vesicles from a bacteria that have been genetically modified in order to over-vesiculate, so produce uh, a bigger amount of this vesicle, and also to reduce the endotoxicity. For example, uh, modifying the LPS structure at the end. And so we call indeed GEMMA, that stands for Generalized Model for Membrane Antigens, those autoimmune vesicles that are produced from those genetically modified bacteria. Uh, so those are indeed autoimmune vesicles, but with a, a characteristic that make them much more interesting because they are well-tolerated, low um, rectogenic, but indeed very good in stimulating the immune system because uh, those surfaces uh, really truly resemble uh, the surface of the bacteria from which they have been uh, generated. So those are GEMMA and those can be the, the main vaccine component. And of course, I can tell you a little bit more about why this is indeed a very good vaccine component. So the fact that uh, th there are intrinsic characteristics of GEMMA that make them a really uh, good choice uh, for a vaccine. Um, for example, their size. So usually they are around 25 to, 100, uh, to 250 nanometer. And that is indeed uh, the right size to facilitate uh, the draining into the lymph node, the uptaking from immune cells. And something that was also that is very interesting in GEMMA is that since they are generated from the bacteria, they contain also what we call PAMPs. So PAMPs stands for pathogenic associated molecular patterns, and those are very conserved um, elements in the, in the bacteria that, that are able to um, acting as an adjuvant. So GEMMA, for this reason, um, are self-adjuvanted But Probably the, the most interesting uh, characteristic of GEMMA um, as a vaccine component is the fact that at the same time with this component, we can display to the immune system several antigens. And this can be key sometimes, uh, of course, depending on the disease that we need to, to prevent or to treat, but often to prevent a disease caused by bacteria uh, one antigen is not good enough. And uh, GEMMA allows us to have one single component with several antigens in the surface. And this is the, why we call it a multivalent approach. And uh, those antigens can be able to indeed protect from a variety of different strains of the same bacteria, for example, but not only, because in GEMMA we can also display antigens from uh, other bacteria, from an heterologous bacteria, and this can be 
quite uh, exciting uh, to be able with one only vaccine, for example, to address uh, bacterial infection, for example. So obviously you mentioned they can help tackle um, bacteria. So I'm assuming one potential target is probably antimicrobial resistance. Um, could you talk about some of their potential applications? Where could they be used? Yeah, indeed, the antimicrobial resistance is, is a hot topic. IMR is uh, one of the biggest public health challenge. It's becoming a, a threat globally, and, and GSK is uh, indeed uh, uh, taking very seriously this uh, issue. And research really hope that uh, uh, this technology that we call GEMMA uh, is a critical tool uh, to fight against uh, uh, IMR. And this because GEMMA is really tailor-made uh, to produce vaccine that target bacteria. And as I tell you before, often with bacteria, we really need a multivalent approach. Um, we need to have more than one antigen. Uh, often bacteria can um, circulate in different strains. So we really need a vaccine that is able to prevent not one only strain, but more than once. And, Gemma intrinsically is able to do that because it can display a panel of antigen that uh, can indeed cover more than one strain. So those are uh, the reason why this technology is particularly interesting in the fighting against IMR. But I, I, I mentioned low-income country. IMR is an issue in high-income country and low-income country. There is no doubt However, Gemma is a technology that uh, is quite sustainable, I would say, because the, the manufacturing process is simple. It's made with three steps. One, fermentation, so the chamber when, where the, uh, the bacteria can grow and produce the autoimmune vesicles. And two, steps of filtration. So the first filtration is to separate the bacteria from Gemma. And the second filtration is to purify, so separate Gemma from smaller components. So this is quite simple. And uh, this is the reason why for vaccines that are um, developed to address the unmet medical need in low-income countries, this can be a very smart choice. Absolutely. And as Mark mentioned earlier, that sort of shift towards more biological manufacturing processes, that really simplified process where it's very reliant on biological systems and less chemical synthesis, massive um, solvent use, all the rest of it, I suppose, also has an impact on sustainability. Yes. And indeed, as, as Mark said before, those steps can indeed change, modify the structure of the antigen, for example, protein or lipoprotein. So the fact that we do not uh, have those uh, conjugation steps, protein will be displayed in their native conformation. They really do resemble the protein that are present in the bacteria naturally. So that make not only easier and uh, one less step to do in the production, but also the final result is much more uh, similar to the biological target for which is made. So it's effectively closer to almost the wild type antigen that's just naturally expressed on the bacteria you'd encounter every day in day-to-day -day life. Absolutely. 
Great. So it sounds like a really novel sort of system in terms of adjuvanting vaccines. And adjuvants are obviously a technology that quite widely applied in the industry. So, Mark, could you tell us a little bit about what adjuvants are and why they're sort of such critical focus for vaccine developers like GSK? Sure. Um, Adjuvant technology goes back almost exactly a century now. And so when we started first using adjuvants, it was really a, a completely ad hoc process. The first adjuvants were associated just with inflammation or you could almost say trauma at the injection site because people noticed that you got higher titers of antibody to the toxins that they were working with back then if there was some associated inflammation. So the the basic concept for quite a long time with adjuvants was that if you generated inflammation, you'd get a higher titer. Nobody actually knew why. It's a a perfectly sort of empirical process. And so people use pretty much anything as adjuvants. And I mentioned earlier on that one of the big advances in uh, vaccine development has been a better understanding of what we're actually doing at a molecular level. And this has really been true for for adjuvant development. So over the last 25 years, I guess, we've been looking at the individual molecules which have an adjuvanting effect in nature. So Julia already mentioned some of these, what we call uh, PAMPs, so sort of pathogen-associated molecular patterns. We know and have known for a long time When you get an infection of various kinds, it's typically associated with immune activation and uh, inflammation, which is completely non-antigen target specific. So molecules like LPS, which go into the formation of some of these vesicles that we use as delivery systems, these are adjuvanting molecules by themselves because they're recognized by the immune system as foreign, as uh, associated with a class of organisms which is we generally consider, or at least which our immune system considers to be dangerous. From our point of view, this is a, a technology that we can exploit. So what's happened over the last 20 years when it comes to adjuvant development is that we've moved away from the idea that it's purely an inflammatory or a, a damaging effect, which leads to the increased immune response. Uh, to a recognition that there's actually a a level of recognition by the innate immune system of these molecules. And it's not either or, it's not inflammation or not inflammation. In the very beginning, when we looked at this, a lot of the divisions were fairly crude. Either it was pro-inflammatory or it was anti-inflammatory. But the truth is that when you come down to the molecular level, there are dozens of different receptors on innate immune cells, which can recognize one or more of these pathogen-associated molecular patterns or or PAMPs. And it's not just which receptors can recognize and stimulate a response, but the combination of them. It's the the kind of receptors which, which activate, and the magnitude of that activation can actually lead to a whole host of different outcomes. And so as we've been unraveling these pathways, Modern adjuvants typically target these. So remember what I said before about a shift from synthetic chemistry to biology. The adjuvants which were developed in the past, like alum, alum worked, people thought, because it was an irritant. You you generated an, an irritating response and that boosted recruitment of immune cells and it boosted your immune response. Today, we actually know that there are specific receptors 
which will bind to, to alum, and that it has multiple different roles. So that's, I, I mentioned alum because it's the oldest licensed adjuvant had, had been around since 1923. But modern adjuvants typically aim to stimulate specific responses. More and more people are looking at what at GSK we've called adjuvant systems, where you take multiple different molecules and say, this molecule used at this concentration should activate these receptor pathways, these transcription factors, and you're going to get, let's, let's just say, TNF-alpha, gamma interferon, IL-1, IL-6 or produced. And at the same time, you say TNF-alpha is associated with localized tissue damage, in worst case, necrosis, with fever, all of these things which can, at high levels can be potentially negative uh, effects, adverse events when you're vaccinating. So you also want to stimulate these other pathways into leukin 10 production, some of the gamma interferons, which will turn down that TNF production without inhibiting inflammation and activation. Now, we're still learning a lot in this area. There's an almost infinite number of combinations, but these kinds of technologies can be, for example, combined with the Gemma technology that Julie was just talking about. So you can get your vesicles produced and at the same time have your production organism producing the necessary PAMPs to stimulate the specific response you, you want. So what you said before is, is right on the money. What we're producing in many ways, if you like, is like a, a sketch of a pathogen. When your immune system sees a pathogenic bacteria, what it actually sees is a lipid vesicle studded with a whole range of molecules. And some of those molecules obviously are responsible for pathogenic effects. What we're doing is we're presenting the immune system with a lipid bubble that has a few stimulants on it and the antigens that we want to respond to and nothing else. In a way, uh, if we think about the mRNA vaccines, also delivered either in lipid vesicles or, for example, on chitosan particles. Chitosan is another uh, adjuvant. That technology is being developed at the, the moment as well. Your body sees the protein which is produced by the mRNA and is responding to it as though it were a viral protein, but there's no actual virus there. And we can do the same thing with bacterial pathogens by presenting, if you like, the sketch of a bacteria, a lipid vesicle carrying specific markers and just like different bacterial infections have different pathological outcomes, you can tailor your, your adjuvant system to deliver those, whether you want a strong antibody response, what kind of antibody response you're, you're looking for, whether you want an inflammatory response, what kind of innate response you want to stimulate. All of these things are potentially manipulatable, and that's the space that we're moving into now with adjuvant technology. And so this sits alongside the digitalization of immunology that I was talking about before. You have your model organism, your model vaccine, your model pathways and say, what do we need to trigger to get these profiles? And it's been very important for, for example, developing vaccines for older adults. We talk a lot about immunosenescence or decline, age-related decline in immunity, which is a real thing. But it's not an inability to make immune responses. It's a change in the response based on the, the sort of the immunological history of older individuals. So adjuvant technology provides us a way of saying under normal circumstances, the immune system is producing too much of this, too little of that. So we need to correct it. So to answer your initial question, 
you know, what are, what are edge events? It's moved beyond just boosting your overall response to specifically manipulating the kind of immune response that you want. Absolutely. And I suppose we have heard so much about tailoring and personalising medications to the actual needs of whether it be a patient population, so an age range, or whether it be a specific individual. Um, you know, that idea of tailoring medicine, adapting side effects, making it work the best it possibly can for um, an individual is really key and uh, certainly something I think we're going to see more of going forwards. So, with adjuvants, um, could you tell us a bit about their manufacturing? Are they also witnessing this sort of biological uh, method shift or are they still very much synthetic? At the moment, I would say the process is still largely synthetic. But if we could move to, or I would say we're in the process of moving to more biological processes, uh, and this is actually particularly important, a lot of the adjuvant components that we use in adjuvant systems Julia already mentioned lipopolysaccharide or, or LPS. It's a major component of a lot of bacterial membranes. And, and for a lot of pathogens, gram-negative organisms, it's actually quite toxic for humans. And uh, if you're exposed to too much LPS because of an infection, for example, um, that leads to a lot of TNF release. Uh, it leads to fever. Uh, inflammation, in the worst case, necrosis and, and tissue damage, or if you get a big dose of it, systemic uh, shock, sepsis and death. It's also a major adjuvant, and the reason that's been possible is because that we've taken the LPS derived from bacteria and detoxified it by clipping out the sections which are responsible for much of the toxicity. So these Modified LPSs were originally made synthetically. Now they're produced from recombinant organisms. And that means better safety because you don't actually have the toxic product to start with, which you then detoxify. And it's vastly increased our ability to make it because the, the old initial procedures, you grew up the organisms, you then extracted the membranes. From the membranes, you then extracted the LPS. That LPS then had to be detoxified. It then had to be purified again to make sure that your product was uh, non-toxic, it had to be tested for safety, and then, only then, could you actually start to use it. Whereas the modern process is you're producing a part of the LPS, which is intrinsically non-toxic, and then you purify that, and then you're done. The same process is going on with a lot of molecules. There is a catch, and the catch is that compared to the um, small molecule drugs, which are manufactured in huge quantities, a lot of these uh, adjuvants are biological products. So producing them in large quantities is challenging, but extracting them from their original biological sources is even more challenging. So there are big gains to be made there. And with so many vaccine technologies from mRNA to virally vectored, adjuvanted, GEMMA, available. How does GSK actually go about selecting which vaccine technology it's going to use in for each disease or each patient population? When you're when you're looking at developing a new vaccine, you always, always start with burden of disease, affected population, and then come down to the, the molecular pathways which are associated with the development of pathology and protection. You need to know those before you know what kind of vaccine vaccine technology is most appropriate. So a question I hear a lot these days is like, mRNA vaccines have proven 
that they can be produced at scale, they can be produced very rapidly, they can be modified very rapidly. And so, you know, are all our vaccines going to be mRNA based in future? And the answer is no, probably not, because they're ideal for generating a quick response against a viral infection. We've seen that demonstrated on a, a really large scale, uh, but they won't necessarily be ideal for generating long-term durable immunity. And unfortunately, we've seen that demonstrated on a large scale as well. Um, so we may look at modifying those vaccines to create depot of antigen, which persists for longer um, than the RNA that we've seen before. There's a variety of technologies that you can use. You could use um, adjuvants for, for that. Uh, you can use vesicle delivery. Uh, you can use uh, slow release materials. There's a lot of different technologies, but you have an identified need there that you can tackle. And it's it's true with other diseases as well. I think the crucial thing to understand about vaccine development is that every vaccine is essentially a bespoke product. Just because an mRNA vaccine works for this disease doesn't mean that it will work for others. Just because one mRNA vaccine works, it doesn't mean that another one using the same technology but slightly different antigen and delivery system will work too. And we've, we've seen that in the pandemic as well, where some vaccine technologies have succeeded, some haven't, but they're actually carrying pretty much the same antigens. So all of these things balance together. And then there's one other aspect which you need to think about once you've decided what your target is, and those are what I would call practical technologies. How easy is it to manufacture? What can you use from your existing portfolio? Or do you need new technologies? And then things like logistics, cold chain, all of that, even down to delivery. For infants, you would always, if you can, prefer simple uh, administration oral nasal, for example. Injection is the default because it's it's reliable, but it's not necessarily what you want if you could avoid it. So all of those things play into what your final product looks like. And under normal circumstances, when we're not in a pandemic, um, it's not unusual to spend a couple of years just working up what we call your target product profile. It's like, what do you actually want the vaccine to look like? And in the course of that process, you'll define what technology you use. Absolutely. And even if you just think about, for instance, safety as just one aspect, vaccines are often quite an interesting concept in that you're delivering them to essentially a healthy population. It's not like with a cancer drug where someone's already got a potentially life-threatening disease. So certain side effects are going to be acceptable to have in that population because you're saving their life. In a vaccine, they might not be because you're delivering it to an essentially healthy person. You want to help them without necessarily the negatives. And I think that's certainly something that's going to be interesting to see as things become more targeted. And as you say, vaccines become more and more bespoke products um, going forwards. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Uh, safety is always uh, the first step of every uh, vaccine development. Vaccine can be mild rectogenic when that rectogenicity serves to the uh, immune response, but it has always to be very well tolerated. I, I think this is where the, the technology are very important because we need a product in which there is a fine, a delicate balance between uh, enhanced immunogenicity but not reactogenicity. And that windows is uh, really the, the, our target. 
it really comes down to that sort of quality by design kind of principle in that you're making things fit to purpose because they're designed to be fit for purpose, not because later down the road we're going to test that they're right. What, what Julia said is, is completely right, but there's an additional factor to take into consideration as well, which is that it's true there is very low tolerance for side effects when you're giving things to people who are healthy, but vaccines are also administered to populations that run into the millions or the hundreds of millions, which means that even very rare side effects rapidly become visible. So there was a lot of debate last year, early this year, about myocarditis in young people who received a, a COVID vaccine, but that's a side effect that we see in, in roughly one person, 30,000. For a conventional drug, a significant adverse event that you see in one person in 30,000, they would weep tears of joy if it was that low. But for a vaccine, that's borderline unacceptable, simply because it's given at scale. So what you said is before is, is correct. It's about making it fit for purpose. And the purpose for a vaccine is actually quite different from any other kind of medicine. Unfortunately, that's all we have time to discuss for today. Thank you, Julia and Mark, for joining us and for your wonderful insights into these critical vaccine technologies. It was fascinating to hear about the Gemma technology and its potential to offer a platform for protection against multiple pathogenic strains. On behalf of European Pharmaceutical Review, Julia Giordano and Professor Mark Doherty, thank you for listening and we hope you'll join us for our next episode.